Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I'm delighted to talk to Hassan Spiker. You're most welcome, sir. Oh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. And you're actually in England, aren't you? You're not in California at the moment, so... I did manage to crawl my way back here, yeah. Um, but the sun seems to be forgetting to come up here. Not sure why. It's, it's, it's quite, di quite different from California. Um, for those who don't know, um, Hassan is a philosopher and comparative scholar of Islamic, Greek and modern thought. He's, a, he's the son of Anglo-American converts to Islam, members of a trailblazing group who in their 1970s communes initiated some of the first experiments in the revival of traditional structures of Islamic knowledge and Sufism within the desacralized context of the modern world. After growing up in a rich spiritual and intellectual home environment, Hassan spent 12 years studying the Islamic sciences in the Middle East. In the course of his studies, Hassan principally focused on interactions between the school of Ibn Arabi and late Kalam theology, and also completed his memorization of the Quran. Upon his return to the United Kingdom, Hassan entered the University of Cambridge, uh, which I think was recently ranked one of the top three uh, universities in the world by the Times Literary Supplement, I seem to remember. Yeah. Uh, by the yeah, by the by, um, where uh, for his M. Phil he studied the works of Plotinus, Kant, and Hegel under the guidance of Professor Douglas Headley, uh, a renowned scholar of Platonism and German idealism, and one of the key contemporary proponents of Platonism as a living tradition. Fascinating, for his thesis on the relationship between Platonic hierarchy and Enlightenment conceptions of individual self-determination, Hassan received a Distinction and Faculty Prize from the University of Cambridge. Congratulations on that. Thank you. From uh, 2014 to 2022, he was a researcher on the, uh, the Taba Foundation's flagship Classification of the Sciences project, widely lauded as one of the most significant contemporary attempts to renew the epistemological and metaphysical foundations of traditional Islamic philosophical thought. Now, his main area of study in Islamic thought is the intersection of Ilma Kalam, that's Muslim theology, Avincin philosophy, and experiential metaphysics. In Greek thought, his main area of study is the Neoplatonic critique of Aristotelian immanentism. And in modern thought, it's the philosophy of Kant, 
the metaphysics of freedom and the possibility of metaphysics. And Hassan joined Zaytuna College in California as a lecturer in philosophy and logic this year in 2022. Today, Hassan has kindly agreed to discuss his new book entitled Things As They Are, Nafs al-Amma and the Metaphysical Foundations of Objective Truth, a work which we might describe as an introduction to Islamic ontology. So over to you, sir. Thank you so much, Paul, and it really is a great pleasure to be here. So um, here is my first slide where I have the title of my book, but with a question mark, Things As They Really Are. Mm -hmm. um, and this is a question of um, the possibility of objective truth, not so much particularly in the context of Islamic philosophy, but in the context of the particular intellectual impasse, as I like to call it, of our situation post-modernity. Post mm. um, and so just to launch into that, um, modern thought is at an impasse because of the legacy of Kant. Descartes' attempted solution to the failure of Aristotelian immanentism affected the Cartesian split. Now, I appreciate these are going to need significant discussion. And there's... There's, yeah. there's Descartes. There yeah. he is. Kant's attempt to reconcile rationalism and empiricism resulted in his separation of being and knowing. There was Kant, a young Kant. Today, an arbitrarist voluntarism glorifying the self-determination of the individual reigns mm. supreme. And here we have... Who, who is that? So I don't know that person. That's Judith Butler. Ah, who lives near us in Berkeley. Um, and I consider her to be as probably the most important theorist of gender fluidity, um, really at the very, very cutting edge of the spirit of the age when it comes to this arbitrarist voluntarism. Well, what, what, if I ask, what, what are their pronouns? I, I should ask this, shouldn't I? Is it the right question? Is it she, she uh, or he or... Oh, they're... Pronouns. Um, I'm not sure. It could be no, Z. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'd have to check that. I'd, no, no. Yeah. I, I was. I was just a passing question. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. No. I, I should have really researched that. But anyway, uh, they are um, a, a famous LGBTQ plus uh, uh, gender fluidity theorist in uh, Berkeley at yeah. the moment. Really at the very cutting edge. Wow. Um, of that. So Isn't I'm that going to. Um, Sorry, did you want to say something, Paul? No, it's just good to. It's, uh, thank you for introducing this person. I, I'm, I'm loath to say he or she because I don't want to transgress. But um, it's good to see a face uh, to, to to these ideas. We've seen obviously uh, Descartes and Kant, and now we've got uh, someone who's very much alive in California today at the cutting edge of the zeitgeist. So it's good to see who these people actually are. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think that if you were to single out this, uh, one figure today, um, it would be her. Um, right really leading the way there. So um, what I'm hoping to do today is, is uh, well, I'm afraid that it's, it's hopelessly ambitious as, as it tends to be, but um, one of the things that I'm hoping to do is just to show how we've arrived at the, mm. um, the, the, the state that we're in intellectually today. And of course, doing that's going to presuppose 
trying to depict, I mean, being able to depict um, in a reasonable way uh, what, what, and, and be able to agree upon um, what our condition is. And I think it is very, very distinctively part of the legacy of Kant. Um, mm -hmm. So, I mean, let me try to depict the situation that um, we're finding in terms of the dominant intellectual and social trends of today, let's say in terms of gender fluidism, simply as one of the manifestations. But I mean, this is what I describe as an arbitrarist voluntarism. Mm. So um, for the benefit of any of the viewers, voluntarism, of course, is the idea that the will has ultimate priority. Um, so the will um, whether it's the divine will or an individual human being's will. And of course, it, as you know, Paul, it, it has um, numerous different permutations and manifestations in terms of different theological questions. So you have you know, voluntarism in terms of divine command theory, which is the idea that um, the good is only what God happens to will. It's not, mm. uh, there's no intrinsic good and so on. Um, and there, there, there are many different manifestations. There's, of course, you know, Schopenhauerian voluntarism, um, the idea that um, the most fundamental ontological reality is simply the will mm. and individual wills participating. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What, what, was his, what was his great book called? Uh, it has the will in it, isn't it? Schopenhauer. I forget the name of the book. It does. Uh, it's something as will, and um, that's about as good as I can do. I can't really remember. Yeah, um, so, yeah it's, it's, it's his most famous book, anyway, has the word will. I have it here in my library. Hang on. Before we both go off and look in our libraries for this, let's move on. I don't want to distract Absolutely. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry I, that, I wish that, that had appeared in my mind at the right moment. In any case, um, uh, so... Schopenhauer's, um, but it's no accident that someone like Schopenhauer, who's very much a follower of Kant, would end up coming to that conclusion that the will is more primary than anything else in existence. Well, the world is will. The world is will. It's just only occurred to me. The world is will. Exactly. As will and representation. Yeah. Absolutely. That's it. The world is will and representation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. So, um, but what I mean by voluntarism here is the idea that what the individual once the manner in which the individual of today wishes to determine not only the course of their own lives without outside interference, which is kind of what we mean by freedom, that word which is endlessly bandied around um, and usually not defined very carefully, but um, the, in, the what, what is so distinctive about our age um, in the hands of people like Judith Butler is it's moved beyond simply human actions. The idea that we, sh that we should be able to have full possession of our own individual wills without outward interference in order to determine the course of our own lives. But it's come that now it embraces what previously were considered to be essences, the mm -hmm. way 
the world really is. Yes. Um, and so, you know, whereas the first targets when it came to Marxism and Marx and Engels and, and their immediate followers were key human institutions like the family and so on, um, and of course various forms of uh, aristocratic uh, political arrangements and, and, and uh, uh, long before that divine command theory and everything. Um, today it's, uh, why, why has it, I mean the reason that it has got to a point where it's attracting widespread attention far beyond the realm of what was traditionally the preserve of, of, of professional philosophers. I mean, it's constantly under discussion in the pages of the Telegraph and the Spectator and the New Statesman and the Guardian. Of course, they're more or less taking opposite views. Is because it's now embracing things like human nature, mm. things like gender, things that seemed previously to be non-negotiable because they're simply uh, they, were, they were fixed. They were, they were determined by nature, by our DNA. But now they're, uh, as you say, fluid. That they're not settled. They are. Uh, uh, well, I'll let you explain what they are. But they don't have that essential quality anymore. No, thank you. And and that's precisely it. Um, and the thing is that this widespread belief uh, tends to permeate everything. So, I mean, if we just take the traditional um, Platonic transcendentals of truth, beauty, and goodness. The idea now is that there is no real truth. There's no objective mm -hmm. truth. There's only my truth. Um, there's no real goodness. It's just what you and I agree we feel is good in the particular context. And it's mm -hmm. made good in, in some sense by our agreement and by our, our both willing it. Yeah. Um, and in beauty, there, there, there's no, there are no fixed intrinsic aesthetic standards um, but it's all, you know, what, uh, it, I mean, it would seem, it would be experienced a kind of perverse oppression for someone to impose their own aesthetic standards on, on, on someone else. But, um, uh, the, the, but it's, 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 it, so it's not only these various types of aesthetic and moral valuation, but it's also things which previously just, were, were thought to be simply part of the order of nature, like being a human being, like mm -hmm. being of a specific gender and so on. And the interesting thing is that this has trickled down to the ordinary, I mean, I hate to say this expression, for, do forgive me, but the, the ordinary man and woman in the street, um, mm -hmm. because... I mean, it's got to the point where this will typically be voiced and even some of the simple rationale or argumentation uh, will be voiced by the average person in the street, as it were, mm -hmm. um, in the the, the so-called West today. Um, and uh, so it's not just the pres preserve of you know, strange philosophers in the ivory towers, but it really has trickled down. And that's what's so interesting about it. Um, so, I mean, but 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 the point is, this has a very clear um, intellectual pedigree, and yes. um, you know the 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 blame, I suppose, if we want to call it blame, or the or the praise, um, depending on how you look at it, should be really laid at the door of this man, Immanuel Kant. 
That's um, very harsh. That's a very harsh judgment, sir. Very harsh. You think so? I'm, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> no, Emmanuel Kant. I mean, we're not actually. Uh, you have not actually mentioned who Emmanuel Kant is. Um, perhaps we should just. Uh, shall I uh, introduce who he is, or do you want to say briefly? His, no, uh, please. Delighted um, if you'd um, if you'd help me out there. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, he was uh, a, a philosopher. He was born in uh, Konigs Konigsberg, which was then part of uh, Prussia. Um, yeah. And it's uh, changed hands a few times. In now part of Russia, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, Russia. But it's actually German uh, originally. Uh, in 1724, and he's seen as probably the greatest uh, philosopher in modern, greatest Western philosopher, I should say, in modern times. Uh, you know, we've had Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates in the ancient Greek world two and a half thousand years ago. But the greatest thinker. Ever since then is this guy called Immanuel uh, Kant and there uh, there are many amusing stories about him how he never ever left his city of his birth um, and uh, he was a, a creature of habit and he, mm. he was he, uh, he, he the people the townsfolk in his city could almost set their watches by the the time the same time every day he went out for his constitutional walk oh, he's um, a very exciting man yeah yeah, but he was, uh, despite that image of a dry and dusty figure, he uh, he was apparently extremely popular and uh, yeah, that's held be fair. dinner parties and, you know, he was a great raconteur. And, um, but the, the book that uh, he's famous, uh, I think, uh, having uh, for having produced two editions of this great tome. Um, let me just uh, get it up here. Ooh. Here we go. Oh, and your copy as well. There <laughs> we go. We both have the same copy, which is a bit, a bit sad. But <laughs> um, this is the, uh, the the standard modern uh, edition in English, uh, edited and tra translated by uh, Paul Geyer and Alan Wood. So if you study this at university, as I think we both did, um, uh, this is the, the edition you will use. It's a big, uh, fat text. Um, I, I call it the CPR, the critic of pure reason, because you'll need CPR if you attempt to read this. In other words, you'll need first aid because it is the most difficult book to read imaginable. It's crusted with jargon, uh, he invents new, new words, neologisms, um, just to articulate his architectural, lang uh, architectural philosophy. Um, but anyway, I'm not going to go into who, but he, this is a man who has had a huge influence on Western thought, Western philosophy, and all philosophy since then arguably has been in in dialogue with him, either to reject him like Hegel did, perhaps, or to embrace him like Schopenhauer did, perhaps. Um, but no one's indifferent to him. And I must say, I, I, he's one of the most extraordinary thinkers in philosophy I've ever come across. Uh, if you appreciate his synthetic a priori's and his you know, it is quite revolutionary and um, a, truly a Copernican revolution, as he called it, in epistemology mm. and, and to some extent in ontology as well. But I'm, oh, I'm very resistant, I'm resistant temptation to go into it. So I will shut up now. That is uh, Kant. Oh, by the way, I will say one more thing. If you want a really good introduction to Kant, a beginner's level, for me, a really readable intro is by the uh, guy called Roger Scruton. Uh, yeah. He was a philosopher, died just a couple of years ago. Uh, he actually had a, a, a wonderful dialogue with um, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf at Zaytuna College. You can watch it on YouTube. Uh, Roger Scruton was a professor uh, of me in many places. But um, anyway, he wrote this brilliant book on Kant, very readable, very short, a very short introduction, published by Oxford University Press. Uh, it's a standard intro to all of his thought, not just the critic of pure reason, but his ethics, uh, his view on religion, his view on reason, his place in enlightenment thought, 
and so on. So I recommend that as an introduction. I do not recommend this book unless you have done a lot of other reading first. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I yeah. love that. Thank you very much. I, I was I was really enjoying that. But um, if you insist on um, handing back to me, then I, I suppose. <laughs> um, so, um, yes, so, I mean, my basic contention, and I'm by no means alone in this, is that, um, and uh, I mean, it's approaching something like consensus in certain circles, is that, the impasse that modern thought is widely held to be at, because we can't get beyond this kind of fluidism about the world, um, which causes all sorts of problems, which we'll go into, no doubt. But the, 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 this is ascribable in a meaningful way to the legacy of Kant. But there is, there is a very significant figure on the way. There are, of course, many, and this is obviously an, an almost embarrassingly simplified version of history. But nonetheless, just because something simplified doesn't mean that it isn't true. Um, it just means that it has to be simplified um, in order to, for one thing, fit into a couple of hours of a presentation. So um, there are obviously hundreds of years that have passed um, in all of this and, and thousands of significant thinkers. But one of the figures who is undoubtedly uh, pivotal on the way to Kant is Descartes and his famous... Cartesian split, mm. um, which is uh, ascribed to him. And what that mm. basically comes down to is the idea that instead of there being a single, integral, whole world, which is intrinsically intelligible in the sense of knowable, mm. the world is imbued with spiritual essences, metaphysical essences, what Aristotle would call form, what the Platonists would call capital F form, um, and, and they'd see the, the world of becoming this world as, as merely a kind of shadow of that, that um, world of real being, the world of the forms. But nonetheless, they, they both agree insofar as the world is intrinsically intelligible. There really is something called human nature. There really is something called nature writ large there really is something called uh, a tree or an animal or whatever it happens to be the various mm. uh, categories of being are real categories and they really do represent essences which are distinct in themselves and it's not merely individual substances like the ones i've mentioned but it's also uh, moral valuation, moral and ethical valuations, aesthetic valuations also to a large degree are mm -hmm. actually embedded in intrinsic mm -hmm. nature of things. Um, and so Descartes is part and parcel one of the key thinkers in the move to a very different view of the universe and the cosmos and being, um, which is often summed up as as belonging to the so-called scientific revolution mm. um and one of his key contributions is this mathematization well, i managed to get that out mathematization of mm. the physical world yes. that the physical world no longer is no longer a world of spiritual essences and and very and and, and very key it's no longer a world of purposes Mm -hmm. There are no purposes in nature that we can know objectively. Um, it's simply a mechanical world 
of extended substances. All we can really know about bodies for Descartes are that they're extended something. Um, and as such, they're amenable to mathematical investigation. Descartes mm. is also very important, and, and mm. he's uh, alongside numerous other figures of the same period, in that he has this really important distinction between primary and secondary qualities. Yeah. Um, and, and primary qualities, um, I mean, the viewers who aren't familiar with this distinction, uh, there's an awful lot on this. Um, but uh, the, basically, primary qualities are qualities in nature which are amenable to some sort of quantitative appraisal. Um, so number, figure, solidity, um, and um, ex in a way, what is meaningful for Kant is that everything that can be studied um, about a body in the physical world is summed up in just the fact that it's an extended thing. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so for him, that's the physical world. It's, it's, it's mathematics. There's mathematics in everything. And, and that's really in some significant sense all it is. Um, and so the split in question is the fact that there's no connection between subjective individual experience, which is famously summed up for Descartes in terms of, I think, therefore I am, in terms of the famous cogito, and the physical world outside. Mm. And so the way that we're going to map out our subjectivity is going to be fundamentally different to our investigation of, of nature. And the, 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 the difficulty with Descartes is he could not see any way to reconcile the two. And this is why we talk about the Cartesian split. It's this bifurcation of reality. Our subjective experience and what we can know from that, starting from the fact that we can't doubt that we exist, and so we can know certain other truths that follow on from that, and that's what Descartes considers to be his reformed metaphysics. That is a completely different sphere of investigation to the investigation of the material world. They just uh, si simply uh, have a, a, a total difference in kind with no overlap. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the traditional scholastic understanding, I won't call it Aristotelian because it wasn't merely Aristotelian, but we'll get onto that. But in the traditional scholastic understanding of what we might call the high middle ages mm. there is a complete continuity between nature the physical world as we call it today and our capacity to know it mm. because nature in itself is imbued with intrinsic intelligibility in the sense of objective knowability <clears throat> our minds are also imbued with this intrinsic ability to know the nature, the natures of things. Right. And there are, there, are, there, are, there are many different understandings of how this works. So for someone like Plato, the reason that the world, that somehow, you know, the world as it is in itself and our attempts to know the world do actually result in success, successful and real knowledge is because mm -hmm. both of them are caused by the forms, not only the world, the physical world, 
in its instantiation, its manifestation, its creation is formed, is caused by the forms, but also our structures of representation, in his case, you know, the, the, the innate ideas which allow us to recognize things in the world are also effects, effects with an E of the forms. And then in the Aristotelian concept uh, context, you have, you know, a rather more tortured and difficult journey because uh, mm. Aristotle has about five lines on the agent intellect in Danima, as you know. Um, and the agent intellect is what numerous, I mean, many different schools of thought within Aristotelianism, whether it's Avicenna or Aquinas or Averroes or whoever, um, they, they understand, they, sorry, justify the claim that the way things really are and our knowledge match, i.e. that we have real knowledge, they, they justify that claim because they say there's something called the agent intellect which underlies both of them mm -hmm. and is allowing that agreement to happen. Is this known as the correspondence theory of truth in epistemology? Is that or? Absolutely. I mean, this is very much related to the correspondence theory. This is one of the most important kind of mechanisms within the correspondence theory of truth, which is, right, when we look at, and we'll, we're, in fact, thank you for mentioning that because we're just about to get there. But when, when we look at the, um, the world and we ask how it is that we know it, or if we think that we do know the world, how do we justify um, the claim that we, are object we have objective knowledge of the world rather than just the idea that it's some sort of subjective imposition onto the world? Um, by you know we, the, the the standard and original way to justify this, and really the only way until Kant, and interestingly Norman Kemp Smith, one of Kant's most important right. contemporary commentators, said Kant was the real origin of the coherence uh, theory of truth, which is the the the, the most fundamental competitor to the, co to the correspondence. But let's go back to that. The the correspondence theory is basically my mental representation or if you want to put it another way my propositions about the world if we put it into we actually get round to constructing propositions um, my propositions about the world are made true by corresponding to the way the the world really is outside my mind so you mm -hmm. have on the one hand propositions about the world which are not experimental they're mental because they're propositions mm -hmm. and you have the way that the world really is extra mentally as in outside the mind it's objective it's independent of our mind and we can know things in themselves uh this is absolutely I'm, I'm looking a bit to kant here but we can know things in themselves uh objectively and truly uh, and they correspond uh to ideas in our minds and so there's this correspondence between them yeah absolutely and so <laughs> you know that becomes very easy when we're just talking about i mean look here's my proposition in my mind which is Hmm, I'm having a proposition here. Kant, Kant's critique of pure reason is blue and it's in my hands. And then look, oh, corresponds, corresponds to reality. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the correspondence theory in, in action. Now, that's all very well and nice if you're a logical positivist or someone who doesn't believe in anything beyond the sensible world because it's very neat and tidy um, way of looking at things. You've got, you know... Uh, lots of physical objects and you have propositions about them and then how do you know those propositions are true well do they refer to this um extra mental 
state of affairs, you know, two um, uh, books and so on. Um, mm. Now, where does the problem come in? And the thing is, this problem is, I would argue, the most important problem in, I'm afraid, what I consider the deterioration of Western thought to the state of affairs we were discussing just now, um, championed by thinkers like Judith Butler. This is the most important question, which is fundamentally that of, well, it's, it's absolutely true that sensible propositions about sensible things correspond to sensible objects. But the problem is, the world isn't just made of sensible things. And this isn't even to invoke any sort of theological array of various beings or, or even to, to invoke God or, or a spiritual reality. It's simply in virtue of when we analyze what really goes into even our most basic knowledge structures, we find that there's all sorts of non-empirical stuff going on there. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, I'm going to come back to Kant. I'm just going to skip ahead a tiny bit and jump straight into precisely how this works here. So, um, so if Sidq al-Qadiyya is mutabaqatu hali nafs al-amr, so our traditional correspondence theory, um, the, the traditional correspondence theory in Islamic thought, and this is pretty much universal, of course, there's huge differences in terms of detail and in terms of what various schools actually identify things as they are, nafs al-amr as, what is nafs al-amr, but we'll get on to that. Just in terms of what we're discussing now, which is the, what is the correspondence theory? Um, it's essentially the following. It's this formulation. And this is an actual formulation that you'll find uh, all throughout the Islamic sciences. So it's Sidq al-Qadiyya nafs al-Amr. And what that means is the truth of a proposition amounts to or is its correspondence, i.e. the correspondence of the proposition to nafs al-Amr. Ah, which can be translated as objective reality, things as they really are, mm. and even things in themselves, although I'd rather not because it makes you think of Kant. But Sidq al-Qadiyya mutabaqatu, and I don't want anyone to have to go for CPR. But um, <laughs> in any case, so yeah, that's that's basically it. Uh, the correspondent, the truth of a, of a proposition is its correspondence to nafs al-Amr, to objective reality. Mm -hmm. I said that's very nice and neat if, if we want to hold on, as long as we're able to hold on to the idea that all reality is sensible reality, that somehow we can reduce every proposition to some sort of sensible referent or some sort of empirical content. But the problem faced by any philosopher worth his salt throughout the history of philosophy is, well, then how do we account for the truth of propositions which do not possess empirical reference? Mm -hmm. So here are just some some conceptions or objects which of various kinds whether they're mental or extra mental which don't actually they're not actually empirical in any straightforward way so one is an army now what exists outside in extra mental reality are individual human beings there are no armies existing in extra mental reality. And I think zooming in on exactly what we mean by this will be very helpful. Uh, extra mental reality 
in the Islamic tradition, al-kharij, literally al-kharij means outside. So it's kharij of zihin, what's outside the mind, is all particular. Right. Extra mental reality is all particular. So if you look at the outside world or even the desk that you're sitting in front of and all of the various objects which are scattered around the room, every existent object is is in Arabic, it's yaqbal al-ishar al-hisiyah. So it ca it's capable of being pointed at. It can, in principle, be singled out, and it's as crude as it sounds, by being pointed at. So I mm. can single out, you know, this lamp here um, because um, it's an individual object which I can I can single out as particularly itself and not something else. It is that particular lamp, and it's it's other than this particular book. It's a particular thing. It, to exist extra mentally is to be particular. It's to be particularized. It's to mm -hmm. be an individual. Mm -hmm. Now, armies are definitely real, but there are no armies as such an extra mental reality because all that exists in extra mental reality are particular things. So there are particular human beings. There's that human being, that human being, that, and then we consider them to be an army. Now, if, if, if other non-human creatures were to look at these individuals behaving strangely together, they would just see lots of individuals behaving in a certain manner, but they wouldn't consider this to be an army because mm. armies don't exist extramentally. They're not individual objects. Mm -hmm. It's a way of considering individuals. Now, the same with countries. Countries are definitely real as far as we know, but there's no extramental country. There's only individual objects which we then consider this huge aggregate of objects to be what we call a country. And that's true of adherents of religions, Muslims, Christians, uh, uh, and schools of thought, and even the universe, because we consider the aggregate of individuated entities, individual entities that we call the universe as a whole, although we cannot experience the whole empirically. So this poses a problem for this corres simple correspondence theory. What does our term the universe correspond to? Because mm. they're only individual objects out there. And then the relational categories, we'd have to talk about the categories. So let's move on to these propositions. Yeah. Right? So can I just put just briefly a footnote that, that there is a school of thought that uh, predates even Descartes called nominalism, I think associated with William of Ockham, a fellow yeah. Eng Englishman. Um, um, and this term nominalism coming from the Latin word nominalis, meaning of or pertaining to names. It's the idea uh, that reality is only made up of particular items and it denies the real existence of any general entities such as armies or or properties or species or universals or any other categories and i think i could be uh, i could be wrong ibn taymir i think was a, a nominalist in that sense he denied yeah. uh, the more platonic sense of ideals or universal categories but so nominalism uh, it, it, it is you know medieval in the sense that william Ockham was a, a medieval uh, theologian and philosopher in england absolutely from surrey in fact i believe yes um yes. <laughs> but um, they've got a lot to answer for. But uh, I mean, it's, it's um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Thank you for bringing up. No, by the way, I don't mean to derail what you were saying. I was just that the, it, the, its emphasis on particulars is, is oh, the denial, yeah, yeah. denial of uh, a, a abstractions. It's not just a, a post Cartesian, which is also there in the medieval period as well. Oh, absolutely. And, and that's a very apposite comment. Thank you. And, and we will go into, we will discuss Occam a bit later. As you say, right. some people ascribe nominalism to, they describe, Ibn Tamir is anomalous, and that is disputed. In fact, I right. okay. have, have 
a few friends who would dispute that, but um, uh, scholar, uh, uh, scholars working on that topic. But um, we'll discuss Occam later, and particularly right. this thing called nominalism, which is extremely important. Right. Um, so then, uh, this. So we were looking at particular, not particular. That it's obviously not particular. <laughs> the universe is not particular. But we were, we were looking looking at distinct conceptions and objects and realities, whatever one wants to call them, um, which don't, they're, they're definitely real, but you can't reduce them to any empirical content. When it comes to propositions, it becomes even clearer what we're talking about. So let's go through some propositions and ask the question, what do these propositions correspond to? So you're talking yeah, about the question. Sorry? So I was just agreeing. I was just a good question. Yes. Well, right, precisely. So, I mean, this is really what, the question of Nafs al-Amr comes down to. And mm. this is even how it was framed, which is quite extraordinary, how it was framed in a lot of the key texts and the development of Nafs al-Amr theory throughout Islamic history. But um, so if we go back to our correspondence uh, formula, the truth of a proposition is its correspondence to things in themselves, things as they are, objective reality, then how do we account for the truth of propositions which do not possess empirical reference, like these ones, mm. metaphysical principles, which we know are true. But if we believe that truth is correspondence to reality, then it's not clear how they can be true because they don't seem to correspond to anything. Mm. Um, but if they don't correspond to anything, then are we forced to come to the conclusion that they are fundamentally subjective and we're actually imposing them upon reality. Now, just to make it really crude, as it, I've, I'm afraid, has to be um, in, uh, in this type of, I mean, whatever presentation you're giving anywhere, um, as you know, uh, as Paul knows very, very well, things have to be kind of boiled down an awful lot. But so, I mean, to a scholar, it's kind of abhorrent crudity, but it's true. Um, this is fundamentally what, motivated Kant's denial of our knowledge of things in themselves, of our ability to know things as they re really are in themselves. Namely, the problem of abstract propositions, which we know to be true, but we can't root in, in extra mental reality, in reality outside of the mind in any way. So to go through a few of them, metaphysical principles, Nothing comes from nothing. Mm. Definitely true. Doesn't correspond to anything. Syllogistic reasoning about general metaphysics. This is just a famous argument in Arabic philosophy. Um, uh, every abstract object, I mean, it's really non-existent entity, but we don't need to explain that now. Every abstract object is distinct. Every distinct thing is subsistent. Therefore, every abstract object is subsistent. The formal structures of, ro of logic, like the first figure of the syllogism, for example, every A is B and every B is C, so every A is C, definitely true, doesn't correspond to anything in extramental reality. Logical and metaphysical principles, principle of non-contradiction, both in terms of as a logical principle, as a principle of being, a thing cannot be and not be at the same time and in the same respect. I mean, that's the basis of all of our knowledge. But again, what does it correspond to in reality such mm. that we can be assured that it's actually true? It's not mm. just a subjective principle that we happen to be equipped with as the type of beings that we happen to be. But if we were some sort of strange alien from 
another galaxy, we might be equipped with completely different principles, look upon the same world and just not see the same things. We didn't have that. We weren't equipped with the principle of non-contradiction. So that's that's the doubt there. Then uh, classificatory intelligibles, modal statements, his son would be a capable dentist, which we use every day. Um, future contingents, the world will still exist tomorrow, doesn't actually correspond to anything, um, even though that we know that it's true. Historical facts, fictional definitions, which is a bit less problematic, propositions about ontological status, being a senator is a social construct, for example, um, gender is not a social construct, for example. Then we've got mathematical models of physical reality, like this delightful one here. Um, <laughs> Uh, which are supposed, you know, the, the, which are, are meant to um, uh, describe, in, in, uh, according to scientific realism, the way that the world somehow really is in its fundamental structure. But it's just a bunch of mathematics, and so on a correspondence theory, you'd have to un you'd have to account for how the reference of these mathematical objects are actually rooted in reality, if at all. Mm -hmm. um, so another one would be methodological statements. Um, I love this one because um, all meaningful statements spot the, the, the contradiction. Spot the, I mean, this is a beautiful self-refuting statement. All meaningful statements are either analytic or empirically verified. <laughs> I mean, for me, that's actually a joke. When I read that, I laugh. I, I mean, because it's so it's self self-refuting, you know. Because how do you? Okay, this is a meaningful statement, presumably that the person wants us to believe. Okay, but you've just said all meaningful statements must be either analytic, in other words, tautological, basically, um, or verifiable. But how do you verify that statement? It, it's a it's something that it goes beyond either analytical truths or empirical truths so it's actually a joke <laughs> exactly it is a, it's a joke and and um but this was as you know the verification principle which oh, logical positivism yes logical positivism which shaped so much um mm. philosophy in the uh, first half of the 20th century yeah. especially in oxford and cambridge um, Freddie of course, the Englishman was one of the chief uh, culprits. Of, but, but he didn't he uh, it, it, later on in life he actually decided it was all bunkum anyway, and he he, he did said, um, and, and <laughs> precisely. And it's actually a notable instance of real philosophical progress that this was basically identified by every professional philosopher as bunk, mm. um, and and so uh, they moved on, but um, the on. truth is they moved on to the impasse, really, that we're presently mm -hmm. in, where everything's now been discredited and we just have no idea what to do um, mm -hmm. and what to think. And, and uh, so the next one is all true knowledge constitutes a fusion of sensible intuition and concept. That's dear old Kant's one. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, for Kant, you the, the experience, which for him is the only true mm. form of knowledge is a, it has to be this fusion of time and space, the intuitions of time and space, which are subjectively imposed upon the world. We're not yes. really in time and space. It's just that it looks like that to us because we're imposing our cognitive apparatuses are imposing time and space on the world and concept, which are all of the, what he calls concepts of the understanding, which make what would other, otherwise be this kind of indistinct blur of, of stuff. We don't know what it is. Um, want to read more about that? It's all in this very short and easily understandable book. Sorry, I'm being sorry. Oh, absolutely. No, please, yeah. please go ahead. Yeah. It's a good that one. I can't see you. All I can see is my, my screen. So. Oh, I see. No, I was just holding up a, a copy of The Critic of Pure Reason. I was being ironic. Oh, you're being ironic. It's very long and very oh, difficult. Crouton. Yes. 
Sorry, I've ruined that. Um, <laughs> all, all true knowledge constitutes a fusion of sensible intuition and concept. Absolutely. <laughs> Go to this um, delightful... That's uh, the one, yes. ...beautiful um, bedtime reading. Beautiful bedtime reading, guaranteed to put you to sleep within seconds. Absolutely. Um, I'll, give you, I'll give you nightmares, depending on your... <laughs> uh, um, so... So you have the concepts of, of the understanding, you know, relation and unity and substance and various concepts which he feels we also need to impose upon the world for it to make sense. Now, again, spot the contradiction here. All true knowledge constitutes a fusion of sensible intuition and concept, except this sentence, but, <laughs> which is the exception to the rule. Yeah. Um, and yeah. then and then his favorite one and the worst of all, really, is we cannot have knowledge of things in themselves except this sentence. <laughs> <laughs> which shows we do have some knowledge of things of, of themselves but how, how do you know that oh, i'm not i'm not going to go there but this is a very problematic statement isn't it we cannot have knowledge of things in themselves how can we be meaningful about things in themselves if we cannot have any knowledge about things in themselves how do we know they even exist if we don't have any knowledge of them exactly exactly mm. i think that's a point that um sheikh most of makes in his critique of kant and i think you've had a, a guest recently yes discuss that yes um so wonderful. I'm not sure why that beautiful carpet's there. Oh, it's very welcome, actually, after pictures of Kant. See that? Yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> Some Islamic uh, art. Um, so I don't know. Uh, there's so much more here. I mean, how, how do you think we should proceed now? Um, I, could it, is it possible? I, I mean, this is a very challenging thing. Just to summarise again what Kant's uh, contribution is to uh, epistemology, because he, he characterized it, he himself modestly characterized his philosophy as a Copernican revolution. Yeah. So, you know, Copernicus, the great Polish astronomer, a couple of centuries before, uh, said, look, basically, uh, the Earth is not the center of the universe. The sun is the center of our solar system, and we go around the sun. So he ch changed from a geocentric to a heliocentric cosmology. Uh, and this is a revolution in the way we see the universe, of course. Uh, analogously, Kant saw his philosophy as a revolution in our perception of the universe in an analogous way. It was a revolution. And I think he was right uh, in his claim to, to be a revolutionary, I mean. Absolutely. Uh, uh, and um, is it possible to summarize uh, how that revolution, uh, what it was? Uh, I, I know it's a complex subject, but um, would you be able to Absolutely. do that? I mean, um, should I? would you like me to try to summarize it although you, I, I'm sure you probably do a better job but uh, i could i could try to summarize it or i could go in a few more slides a bit more in depth about why he was moved to well, i leave it entirely up to you to you Hassan. i don't don't in any way uh, to tell you what to do it's just i think it's worth just dwelling at some point anyway a bit more on uh kant's revolution in philosophy because it affects everything after him it affects absolutely everything yeah so i mean to summarize it briefly first um how did we get to a situation which people think that an act of will can actually make them? Uh, you know, let's say I'm a I'm a, a man at the moment, and um, just after our conversation, I I suddenly feel that um, I'm really not a man. I'm I'm actually really, uh, and I'm not in any way. Uh, uh, I mean, it's a bit glib, a bit um, facetious the way that I'm expressing it, but it's in no way meant to be disrespectful. But, you know, I stay up throughout the night thinking, I really am a woman. I'm not a man. I, I, there's something about me, just something ineffable, which is really not a man. It's really a woman. And I'm going to be a woman. 
and I've decided that I'm going to self-identify a woman. I'm I'm free. I'm an individual. It's my right. I own my my own being, and there's no one who can determine really for me what I am. And all of this stuff about being a woman and gender and femininity and masculinity is all a social construct anyway. It's something we've created. So the idea that I should have to be bound by a social construct, which someone else or circumstances or history or where I happen to have been born has been has imposed upon me, when in fact I find that I incline as a person much more to that social construct of femininity is simply absurd. And it's simply... Uh, an oppressive imposition of of someone else because of power interests and because you know, people want to control us essentially um, of someone else's vision of who I should be upon me and I have to live my truth because I own my own being and my own individuality and so I can make that choice and the others will have to accept it because well surely they would themselves also want their own decisions, their own choices about who and what they are to be respected. And we have to, you know, society has to be built on that basis. Now, the fact that that line of reasoning is so widely accepted today is mm -hmm. really because of Kant. And yeah. I'm afraid the, the way that that works is fundamentally the following. Kant said all everything non-empirical is purely subjective, ultimately. And the only reason we can, in some really in a kind of quote-unquote way, not a real way, but uh, empirical knowledge, maths and physics, is quote-unquote objective, not really objective because it's not really things in themselves, but we can have natural sciences, we can have mathematics, we can; those are real sciences we can do, because they don't purport to transcend what we can experience. So the nature of our cognitive apparatus is the way that we naturally naturally cognize the world, the way we happen to find that we cognize the world really for Kant, is in terms of certain concepts and categories and what he calls intuitions, which are really not mystical at all. They, For, for him, an intuition is simply sensation and time and space yeah and the, the what, what we can know of the world truly know as far as Kant is concerned is only what we can experience and what we can experience is only what we impose upon the world in right. virtue of our cognitive apparatus now that imposition veils whatever the world really is in itself right um we don't know that and we know that we can't know what the world really is. And so that's a slight problem for Kant, as we discussed. We don't need to get into that now. But the point is, all we can know are the objects of experience. So maths and, and mathematics and physics, for example, work. We can have a science of matter. Metaphysics, yeah. which purports to tell you if there's a God or not. Now, God, uh, Kant doesn't say that we can't prove the existence of God. He says we can't know either way strictly can't know either way but in virtue of our nature the nature of our cognitive apparatus we cannot know even in principle whether god exists or not we cannot know even in principle whether there's life after death or not we cannot even in principle know if we have a soul or what the soul would be if we had one or 
you know, whether it survives death, um, and, and so on. A long list of, of metaphysical questions, he says, are not even in principle knowable. Why? Because they transcend all possible experience. Yeah. So, so in, in one fair swoop then, traditional metaphysics, theology is consigned to the dustbin because we're simply not equipped as a species to apprehend those truths. They, they are way beyond our pay grade, to use a hideous analogy. You know, we yep. don't have the cognitive ability to speak meaningfully of these transcendent realities because they're way beyond our experience. So he basically, uh, he looks at the five arguments of the sense of God in the Critic of Pure Reason and in, in his view, finds them wo woefully inadequate. Although I must say people have responded to his arguments since and, uh, and pushed back against his critiques. But um, so traditional metaphysics is consigned to the dustbin. Um, although I must stress, I, I, I always, before I read Kant, I always used to think he was an atheist. He wasn't. He himself believed in God. He was kind of a Lutheran. He was a, a child of Lutheran parents, who, a very pietistic background. Um, and there's a particular Lutheran understanding of one's relationship with God and the human will and the world around us and natural theology, which we won't go into. Um, but there is, I think, an influence on that Lutheran, from that Lutheran ethos in the way he, he quite, is quite down on natural theology and, and well, retreats in this kind absolutely. of... Yeah. Absolutely. And, and uh, in fact, um, I mean, that is something I did want to move on to, um, oh, was, was that Lutheran and, and Occamist background, because, of course, Luther was an Occamist philosopher, and that was his, that was his training. Mm -hmm. Um, as a theologian, and he was a, although he repudiated um, uh, the uh, scholastic reason um, as a tool for knowing God and interpreting the Bible and for theological knowledge, he was nonetheless trained up to the, uh, uh, you know, to the hilt um, in. Yeah. He was a professor of theology at a in university. Yeah, yeah. and and so um, so how do we jump from? Uh, Kant's repudiation of our knowledge of things in themselves to the present. Well, it's the idea that all of mm -hmm. that stuff, which is not strictly empirical knowledge, that's mm -hmm. fair game. Yeah, yeah. Because there's uh, no and also, the idea of human autonomy is really central to his ethics as well. The, 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 the human individual is autonomous and should be autonomous over against any external influence on them they should uh, act from within in terms of their own uh, sense of duty it's a very prussian ethic you know um but but this idea of human autonomy is central i think to his conception of uh, the human being and the individual and this is a very enlightenment idea and this feeds directly into the kind of discourse that you mentioned from that the berkeley person um the autonomy my body my right my universe i decide and, and that's kind of extreme version of kant isn't it i think it absolutely is, and um, uh, and it, it it goes back to this question of how can we have a science in the sense in the traditional sense, you know, which in the medieval world was scientia, in the mm. Arabic tradition ilm. How can we have a science not in uh, point I'm making not modern science, traditional science in the sense of certain knowledge? How can we have a science of non-empirical discourse? Mm. And yep. um, I'd just like to illustrate that now. I think which will be helpful. Um, by contrasting different um, understandings of knowledge structures. So this, oh, um, if I just enter the full screen again, here we are. Uh, this is the most prevalent contemporary model. Um, oh, so uh, we have models of, of, you know, what you might call the hierarchy of the sciences. Um, now, people today, because of their ideological affiliations and beliefs and commitments, would be loath to actually invoke 
any notion of an intrinsic hierarchy of anything. But, <laughs> but yes. uh, the de facto um, queen of the sciences, I think we can all pretty much agree, say, is physics. But you, you use that expression, queen of the sciences. I just, just stress the irony of that, of course, because traditionally the queen of the sciences was theology. Because Absolutely. what can trump theology? Discourse about God surely is the highest preoccupation of the human mind. And that has now been dethroned, uh, in the Western context at least, by, as you say, the queen of the sciences, now physics, these fundamental elements of, of material, material reality. So there's been a complete inversion of the, the traditional world perception. Absolutely, absolutely. And so, you know, we have a, a, a situation today where the so-called hard sciences, the fully objective, truly empirically grounded sciences, which are alone the real sciences, um, are physics, biology and chemistry most fundamentally. Um, biology and chemistry can ultimately be reduced to physics because obviously physics describes the larger universe, which is a precondition for the objects of the, the biology and chemistry studies to, to have come into existence. Um, and then you have this lesser rung of sciences that some would even call pseudosciences, but which are, have some scientific elements, um, significant empirical basis or quantifiability. Again, going back to what you know, Descartes and that shift in the understanding of what science is, which took place um, in terms of um, the distinction between primary and secondary qualities and the idea that all we can really by right study of the of the natural and physical world is what what is quantifiable um mm. whatever is quantifiable um and so psychology and sociology and economics they they have significant quantifiability in an empirical basis but not entirely there's a lot of subjective stuff that we're um that that we're also bringing to bear there so they have a kind of disputed and lesser status um another might be anthropology and then scant yeah. empirical basis quantifiability would be history and, and philosophy including metaphysics and then purely subjective non-quantifiable would be literature law and politics and religion for example so this is an incredible in inversion mm. of yeah. this scheme ah here we go the queen of the sciences back on her throne again metaphysics at the top <laughs> precisely um mm. and so We'll go through this scheme a tiny bit in a moment, but again, I mean, just to explore what what the the, the widespread view, um, which again, I mean, I grew up with this view. I mean, I went to an ordinary state school in Cambridge, and and this is what I uh, I happen to have a strong influence from my home environment because my parents were converts to Islam who converted in the early seventies, and um, mm. and they had uh, they, yeah, they they. They, um, to a large degree, inoculated me against this stuff. But I understood this perspective from, from you know, uh, as a native. Um, and this is what we all grew up in, which is this idea that there is this stark distinction. I didn't write this, by the way. This is just taken from the internet, and it's from the perspective of someone who believes this. But it's this stark separation between humanities and sciences. Um, so it's the idea, again, that comes down to that that issue of non-empirical discourse and can we have a science of non-empirical discourse and and post-kantian modernity basically says no you can't mm -hmm. have a science of non-empirical discourse therefore you better put up with the fact that you can have quantifiable knowledge of the natural world which is alone what we would call objective it's not really objective because you don't really know what things <laughs> are in themselves but let's say it's intersubjective so we can all agree about it um 
So, you know, the, the real sciences are, are, are positivist in the sense that they have empirical reference. You can point to something outside in some way or other, whether it's uh, even if it's, you know, through a telescope or in a microscope or whatever it happens to be. They're objective, they're transparent, they're data oriented. Um, and, you know, they lead to findings, discoveries, facts, laws, progress and so on. And you achieve them by the scientific method. There's methods, there are, there's hypothesis testing, there's modeling and so on. Whereas the humanities, poor old humanities, are fundamentally relativist. It's just what you happen to think of it. No matter how sophisticated or eloquent you are, at the end of the day, it's, it's relative, it's subjective, it's intuitive, it's introspective. And people might say, oh, it's very important. You know, humans do need this. But it, and of course, it's true that we do need the humanities. But what is not necessarily so clearly true is the idea that there is this sharp distinction between what are really objective, so-called objective sciences, which are empirical sciences, and everything else, which is almost everything, actually, um, including our, our philosophies about the world, our theologies, um, all of our <laughs> aesthetic valuations, or our moral valuations, our mm -hmm. ethics, which all fundamentally on this model, ultimately subjective. Well, of course, um, even this is out of date in terms of science, because since uh, Einstein and quantum mechanics, you know, we're, we're now very much aware at the quantum level, at least, of the, uh, the role of the observer in an outcome of experiments, the influence of the, the, the observer himself in, in the way experiments occur and the outcome of those experiments. So there isn't this neat kind of separation between the observed world and the observer. There is now an interaction between them, even in science now. I mean, it's obviously in physics. Yeah. Um, so I I even this model is out of date and positive, more Newtonian than uh, th than Einsteinian in that sense. It absolutely is. Um, and and although I should add the proviso, of course, as you know, that there are many scientists today, including some very um, prominent ones like Roger Penrose, who Penrose, who 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 desperately want to deny that uh, interpretation of quantum physics and the idea that there is a role. Um, that the the observer is in some sense actually affecting the physical outcome, um, and uh, because again, it's it's just impossible to compute in terms of that um, that the certain what I would call prejudices, but certain assumptions about the nature of the physical world. How can you factor in the knowing subject again in mm. our tradition um, uh, in 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 the broad Islamic tradition, and specifically, I, um, I'm more inclined to the, to the Akbarian and the, and the Platonic traditions, but um, it's much easier to account for that continuity between the knowing subject and the object. In fact, in, in a real sense, they are the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's not such a, a kind of unfathomable mystery um, mm -hmm. to see how there could be some causal relation between the two. Um, okay. So here, you know, the act of assumption here is that non-empirical discourse is irredeemably subjective. Um, and this assumption grounds the voluntist ontologies that make the supreme value free choice regardless of what is chosen, which is, you know, essentially uh, the mantra of, of uh, the Judith Butlers and others of, the, of this world. Um, and uh, this, this expression, voluntarist ontology, is voluntarist refers to the will, is it the human will making choice? 
Is that what you mean by absolutely? And 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 you know, at the outset, we we spoke about the current zeitgeist, which is the idea that well, we can make our own reality somehow. There's no real reality out there. We're going to make what what we are. We're going to decide not just what we're going to do, which is pretty reasonable, but we're actually going to decide what we are. That's 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 also up to us. And that's why I'm calling it a voluntarist ontology, because the idea that ontology is actually subject to will, our will. Right. We're actually making the way that the world is. Um, and that goes back to, again, Kant. I mean, it was beautifully uh, epitomized by Sartre's famous statement that... Um, uh, that being is prior to essence, and that there's no there's no human nature. There's yeah. only our pure freedom, and we have to. Yeah. We will only become freedom. We will only become human later when we we construct and create yeah. our own human nature out of uh, us. Sartre is very explicit. There is no God in his view. Therefore, we are free to create this reality, uh, and uh, in the way you described. So it's premised on atheism. Absolutely. Uh, he's very explicit about that. But also, I, I reminded of another Englishman, um, Alistair Crowley, just occurred to me, who, oh, yeah. um, uh, well, he was, he, many would, call it, would consider him a Satanist. I mean, he was a, um, a purveyor of the occult. Um, we won't go into this. But, you know, the, the, I think his mantra, his credo was, you know, do what thou wilt, do mm. what thou wilt. So just exercise your will as you wish. And, and this is this is satanic in what in one understanding. Uh, it's the opposite. The Islamic is uh, uh, understanding is very much that God's will is paramount in the person's life because He is our Creator and Sustainer and and intends good for us. But for the Satanist or or even the, the modern Zeitgeist, it's well, I, I am my own God, uh, and I do as I will, and and this seems to be a satanic inversion of traditional theology. Absolutely, and and I mean it, it. It makes you think of the beautiful verse: Have you not seen he who takes his own self as as his god, yes. uh, not himself, his own caprice, yes. um, his own caprice as as his god? Um, and yes, of course. I mean, with Sartre, absolutely. He yeah, he said uh, there is no human nature because there is no god to have a an idea of it. Yes. So, yes, it very fundamentally comes down to that. Um, and then, so, I mean, this is to be contrasted with this traditional understanding mm -hmm. of the hierarchy of the sciences, which, interestingly, was very substantially shared between the mm -hmm. Islamic world and medieval Europe. And Christian um, Europe, yeah. And Christian Europe, absolutely. And to a large degree, the earlier Neoplatonist situation. So, mm -hmm. um, so this is fundamentally where there is a supreme science, which they would call al-ilm al-a'la, um, mm. It's what's known um, in the medieval world as first philosophy mm. um, in Arabic me metaphysics, tamitatafusika in, in uh, Aristotle, that which comes after metaphysics. There's a dispute about whether that's just, as you know, the way yeah. that books happen to be edited, that it came after physics or not. Mm. I, I find that a bit unlikely personally, that that's all there is to it, but, but God knows best. Mm. Um, and... Um, uh, it, it, it's called first philosophy and sometimes the universal science. Mm. And it, it is the science which is responsible for uh, all of the other sciences. All of the other sciences are subordinate to metaphysics mm. in that traditional mm. model. And they're subordinate in a different way to, to revelation and theology. Yeah. In a way, metaphysics is our journey up because we, it's our 
our existence of knowing subjects on our epistemological journey, trying yeah. to find out the truth. And that's what metaphysics yeah. allows us to do. In a way, yeah. revelation is what's coming down to us. Yes. Um, and, uh, and so they have that kind of relationality. And I guess it's very hierarchical as well. There's a clear hierarchy of truth here from the lesser to the greater, to the, uh, to the little, to the more, uh, it, uh, unlike the, the alternative paradigm you mentioned. Absolutely. There's a, and, and this is seen to be a, a, a hierarchical ordering which mirrors a hierarchical structure of being. Mm. Um, and, and as you see here, mathematics and logic are so important, but they have no, they've, they've got no place in this de facto hierarchy because they have no empirical basis. But the science, sciences cannot operate without them. And this is a big pro problem for scientists who are more philosophically informed yeah, and, yeah. and uh, attuned today because they can't be reduced to physical properties. And this is a real problem for scientists. And we can't not use them, but they're not, they're not physical realities. And it's yeah. very difficult to consistently construe them as physical realities. And as yeah. such, well, does that mean again that our knowledge is irredeemably uh, subjective? Yeah. You mentioned Roger Penrose, the great British uh, cosmologist. What is the status of mathematics? Is it a creation of the human mind or is it like a platonic form that has some kind of independent existence from our minds? I think he inclines to the latter, but that's a different subject. Absolutely. And he has some very interesting works on that. And I, I, I very much respect um, uh, well, the, the, the degree of philosophical attunement that um, Roger Penrose enjoys and the fact that he takes it seriously and unlike mm -hmm. so many um, modern philosophers um, I just yeah. like to um, uh, not at all shameless self-promotion I don't think in the slightest but um, uh, since you mentioned hierarchy yes uh, this is a um, remarkably concise and inexpensive new book <laughs> coming out um, this month. Hierarchy. Would, would you highly recommend it, would you, uh, by, by coincidence? Uh, well, I was hoping you'd recommend it, actually. <laughs> but no, I've, been, I've been silly, because you are the author of this uh, amazing book. No, I'm very much looking forward to... I like the title a lot, Hierarchy and Freedom, an examination of some classical, metaphysical, and post-enlightenment accounts of human autonomy. So it, Absolutely. it kind of a lot of things there. So it's very opposite um, of what we're talking about. And I think to explain a little bit of the argument there, and we see how all of this is related. I mean, Robert Pippin, I mean, if, in terms of, I know that a, a lot of this will be very heavy and we've brought in a lot of different things. And I, 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 um, I beg the forgiveness of the, of the listener for just how much we're piling on here. But I mean, one of the ways to understand the broad narratives um, which are at play here and informed by the philosophy is to read some of the great, um, uh, uh, intellectual historians like Robert Pippin, like Charles Taylor, for example. Hmm. Um, and Robert Pippin has a beautiful book called Modernism as a Philosophical Problem. Oh. Um, and, and one of the things that he says there is that the most characteristically modern claim of the modern individual espousing the philosophies of modernity is this assertion, exactly as you were saying, Paul, of autonomy and mm. of this radical individual freedom, and that in some d real way there is nothing else. And that is what's most, co that's the gift that modernity has given us. It's freed us from all of those false strictures and those false hierarchies and those, you know, um, these claimed intrinsic hierarchy. And now it's even freed us from, you know, these, these social constructs like gender and the family and, and even human nature that we'd previously thought were part of the, of the real fabric of being. Um, and this was only possible 
um, as as Pippin shows and as as Charles Taylor and others show, because of this sense of having dismantled the hierarchy, um, and so there, there there are these there's this assumption again following on from the general trajectory of of um, uh, of Western thought from what is called nominalism in Occam and then through mm. Descartes and into Kant, um, this general uh, trajectory of um, believing that uh, there's not only not an intrinsic nature of individual, uh, individual objects don't have intrinsic natures, but their context of being has no intrinsic order either. So there's no intrinsic ordering of being. Nothing is really intrinsically superior to anything else. Nothing is really intrinsically metaphysically prior to anything else because we wouldn't be able to know that. Um, and so it was seen that what is actually, in, in actual fact, the Dionysian, pseudo-Dionysian vision of the hierarchy of um, not only the metaphysical hierarchy, but the metaphysical hierarchy being reflected in the orders of society. So, you know, the idea that in medieval society, everyone's locked into their place. You know, the serf is, has to remain in, in his place as the serf and the lord of the manor is, has a higher position than him. And, you know, the, 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 the knight and the, and the, the tradesperson and the king and all these people are locked in a particular position. And of course, the, the religious hierarchy is at the top and in a way, and that this somehow reflects a, a hierarchy of being. So the, the church hierarchy is going to be reflecting the, um, uh, the angelic hierarchy, for example, that the, 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 the ecclesiastical hierarchy is going to be reflecting the angelic hierarchy and everyone is taking their rightful place. And that's why people lacked their, their real freedom to determine their own lives, because they were locked into this false conception of intrinsic hierarchy. Um, and so uh, yeah, you've got someone like Pippin who says, uh, individualist notions of freedom are often viewed as a response to a collapse in the authority of the classical or pre-modern view of freedom as the true right realization of one's identity or nature. So it's, it's a completely different conception of freedom. Such a view did not require a search within for an individual nature of self, just the opposite, realizing one's true nature in this traditional view and so being fully free instead required finding one's place or role in something outside oneself, first in the polis or social community, and ultimately in nature or the whole. By understanding that one could only be oneself by realizing this function within the whole, rather than is sometimes interpreted sacrificing oneself for the sake of the whole, one could achieve a, satisf a satisfying and finally free life. The widespread collapse of the metaphysical support for such a view of an ordered hierarchical cosmos or divide, divine order is what on many accounts provoked the modern assertion of freedom as a radically individual self-determination, particularly in Charles Taylor's, he's referring to source of the self. Since there were, it seemed, only individuals having to rely primarily on themselves in deciding what to do, the primary task of modern civilization <clears throat> looked at the finding a way of allowing each to realize effectively the results of such self-determination. 
And that is absolutely fascinating. If I can just give, I can't help but offer just a few responses to that. In terms, okay. of, this is a very European Eurocentric issue, isn't it? This revolt against a church, uh, which uh, uh, in the Reformation, the Reformation's emphasis on the individual, individual belief. Martin Luther, we mentioned him already, over against ecclesiastical tradition. That that's that's quite uh, key, and the rise of modern liberalism. As, uh, as as a result, uh, in part of the wars of religion that took place in Europe, took place in Europe, people were exhausted by the the killing and the carnage and the endless wars between Catholics and Protestants and so on. And so you, you get born the liberal social order, this alleged neutral space where people could resolve the differences. Um, yes. All of this, however true it may be, is very much a European headache, isn't it? It's not it's not something that organically comes out of an Islamic. Uh, uh, perspective or any other perspective and, and yet today it seems it's it's assumed to be universalizable it's just a universal natural state of affairs Absolutely. Um, but this emphasis on the individual you know it goes back as you say to the reformation uh which is heavily theological that you see it again in kant the idea of the human autonomy and this feeds through ultimately this, this individualist conception of the human being but I keep on stressing that this is a very much a localized, geographically particular part of the world, North Europe and the United States. But because of other issues, it's become a universal ideology, impinging even Muslims in the Muslim world now. And, and that's why it's becoming really dangerous, because Islam is very different from this ideology. Absolutely. And, and that beautifully, um, almost as if you had prayer knowledge of what's in my... Oh, really? That beautifully feeds into to this next ah. Um, which is why is this such an idiosyncratically Western phenomenon? Yes. Yes. Not only this trajectory of what I consider to be the deterioration of thought through Occam and Descartes and so on, um, but also the um, what it resulted in, which is this radical self-determination and, and freedom, what is really arbitrary freedom, freedom regardless of what is chosen, um, as this ultimate human goal and ideal. Um, and I suppose, um, uh, yeah, probably this this should be. I would expect the the last section because um, um, I just feel that I'm blathering on too much. Um, Not so, at all. well, that's very kind of you. But um, there's, there's so much to say. What, what one can't only scratch the surface in any particular area. Exactly. That's exactly. And, I, and there are many other things I wanted to go into, but. Um, I think, uh, maybe another time if it's too much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this will will probably wrap up what we've been discussing beautifully. So, um, I consider this to be the result, and really to be this really, truly to be the case that this idiosyncratic flavour of Western thought resulting in such a distinctive and, and particular and strange and, and extreme result of this idea that somehow individuals decide ontology and the way that existent things really should be and can be and, and are, um, paradoxically comes from a theological discussion mm -hmm. Which yep. just happened to be the most important thing in existence to 
medieval civilization in the West, Christian civilization. Um, so, um, and this is the question of the, 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 the perplexing doctrines of the Trinity and the Incarnation. Um, so, the early Middle Ages, often referred to as the Dark Ages, and the High Middle Ages, which is basically Bonaventura and Aquinas and you know, after the conquest of Toledo and the, the establishment of the universities, that period of um, synthesis um, and high culture, and then the late Middle Ages, which is you know after the Black Death and and you know, the, the decline and and Occam and and um, uh, and all sorts of uh, controversies in the Church, um, the late Middle Ages, each possessed a distinct and characteristic way of treating the relationship between revelation and reason. Mm. Um, so the perplexing doctrines of the Trinity and the Incarnation, the holy mysteries, as they're known, though productive of ever-present tensions, nonetheless continually suggested the justifiability of exceptionalist self-definitions of Europe as, uh, as Christendom, which I, th I, I would argue continues to this day, the idea that yeah. the, the West somehow, I mean, uh, as manifest great, you know, to tragic effect in the invasion of Iraq, the idea that um, the West has something really special that everyone else needs and, and we alone have it. And it's to the extent that, you know, because we alone have access to this liberating truth, it's really justified even to go around imposing it upon people. Because otherwise, well, well, even in, in Qatar, in the World Cup, well, well, the, the Western attitude everywhere to Qatar as a Muslim country is that you must change because we in the West know better than you. doesn't matter what you think. Uh, simply because we are right. It's axiomatic the West is right. You know? it's, it's, it's supreme arrogance, uh, actually, which, which I'm glad to say people are pushing back against now in the Muslim world, as far as I can see. Yeah, and, and even um, unexpected people here, like Piers Morgan, um, <laughs> which, is, uh, which is interesting. Um, but, you know, credit is, uh, you know, where it's due and everything. So um, the perplexing, uh, uh, we already did that. After all, the faithful believers in a creed about God so radically different from that of the Jews and the Muslims must either be severely misled, a possibility which clearly could not be countenanced by them, or instead be God's new chosen people, alone privy to a staggering new revelation of admittedly intuitive truths, not known or even imagined by the other great monotheistic peoples of the world or even by Moses. Very well said. <laughs> The idea that the problems posed by these holy mysteries were amongst the primary contributors to the distinctive attitudes to faith and reason ushered in by the rise of the scientific and Protestant revolutions is perhaps a paradoxical thesis, but is nonetheless one that is richly evident. The insurmountability of these problems eventually cemented a notion of the complete otherness of faith and reason that is mm. unrecognizable outside of Christendom. Mm. The secular project itself, and indeed modernity, in turn arose in the West precisely because of a radical split that was affected there between supernatural and natural knowledge, largely mm -hmm. as the result, I think, uh, of changes in the manner in which the holy mysteries came to be treated. Um, the first of these ways of approaching the mysteries is associated especially with Anselm of Canterbury, oh. uh, whose 11th century, as you can see, Richard of St. Victor, and William of Auvergne, justified according to a strongly Platonist scheme modified to accommodate the idiosyncra idiosyncrasies of Christian doctrine. Of course, actually, there's nothing more antithetical than Platonism uh, and Christianity, as, as Porphyry was um, very eager to point out in his famous um, critique of Christianity. But 
Nonetheless, the, uh, this did, that didn't stop Augustine. So the Trinity and the Incarnation were viewed as being capable of actual proof, were underlain by necessary, re necessary reasons, and thus formed part of the domain directly accessible to reason. So essentially, I see these three stages corresponding to the early Middle Ages, the so-called Dark Ages, uh, the High Period, so-called High Period, and the Later Period, being the move from thinking that, that this most important uh, aspect of or, or these most important of all doctrines the trinity incarnation upon which the salvation was thought to rest um went from the, the attitude went from the idea that they are they're part of the continuous with reason and actually provable by reason mm. to the view that they they can't be proved by reason but they're merely compatible with reason they don't contradict reason we can they can work together so that's aquinas's kind of fragile harmony that he affected which we'll see now and then moving to Ockham who said oh well actually unfortunately they are formally contradictory and actually oppose reason we've noticed but that basically means there's something wrong with reason and we'll just have faith and so our, our, our understanding of faith will move towards that completely unrecognizable to, to Islamic philosophy, understanding of faith as blind faith. Mm, mm. Um, it's not, you know, it's, it's this leap of faith that somehow is this virtuous act, but there's yeah. no evidence whatsoever. Um, Kierkegaard, Soren Kierkegaard, of course, the great Christian philosopher, Danish philosopher, yeah. made a virtue out of that. This, uh, yeah. Yeah. And of course, you know, one can't dismiss a, a thinker of his weight, but um, it's just interesting how that kind of attitude does come out of of this trajectory of this this ultimate this kind of broad trajectory of western thought um so it was prior to the conquest of toledo in 1085 an annexation that sparked a seismic seismic shift in the knowledge structures of christian europe with the discovery and subsequent translation in the latter half of the 12th century of the lost logical works amongst aristotle's organon of course they lacked uh, most of aristotle's organon they only had a little bit of what Baethius had 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 summarized, and of Avicenna's and Aristotle's metaphysics, and of Avicenna's subalternated model of the sciences and his scientific metaphysics in his El Shifat, the healing, that these, it was prior to the conquest of Toledo, that these continuations of the Platonic, Platonic spirit of Augustine of Hippo were defined in an intellectual context that made no clear distinction between philosophy and theology. A principle employed by Augustine root in Isaiah 7-9 and sometimes trans translated, unless you believe you surely will not understand, would go on to be central to the approach of the theologians of the so-called Dark Ages or be mm. articulated by Anselm in the 11th century by his famous phrase, credo ut intelligam, I believe so that I may understand. Yeah. Knowledge of any type depends upon the illumination granted by faith. Reason illuminated by faith attains the truth. Anselm of Canterbury, so representing this, mm. this first approach, advanced his theory of atonement in his influential Cur Deus Homo, Why Did God Become a Man? Radically estranged from God through sin, this kind of the argument, man has the obligation to make amends in order that God and man might be reconciled and man might fulfill the debt of honor he owes to God. And yet informing his reason with prior principles from his faith, Anselm assures us that this, that, that reconciliation could never be affected by any ordinary human being. Mm. The logical necessity discoverable by the human intellect, this makes the reality of a God-man necessary. Mm. 
And this, idea has- of, this idea of a debt of honor is a very feudal understanding of, of soteriology. So it's, it's not found, uh, you know, in, in the early patristic sources. This is very much of its time, I think, and place. Mm. Mm. And uh, just before this, I was watching your debate with Rowan Williams, and well done, by the way. You, 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 that was beautiful. But um, they're brilliant. I was cheering you on. But um, was, my goodness me, it wasn't a debate, by the way. It wasn't supposed to. I was told by Cambridge University, "Do not debate Rowan Williams." You know, the Archbishop <laughs> of Canterbury. But I was a bit naughty yeah. because I, um, I decided during the Q and A to make um, certain comments which were slightly meant to trigger Ooh. a response from him. So I managed to subtly engineer a debate. Um, but um, yeah. I, I was told not to do that, so I was a bit naughty, actually. Well, I mean, trade really? secrets coming out yeah. here. <laughs> yeah, no, that was uh, that, that was really uh, very heartening. Um, in any case, so uh, yeah, you were discussing. I mean, uh, I mean, in Islam, you know, God doesn't need to kill himself in order to forgive us, um, mm. and uh, so the highly influential. I mean, that wasn't very sensitively stated. Sorry, the highly influential theologian prior of the Abbey of Saint Victor near Paris, Richard of Saint Victor. So this is another one who's representative, really, of this this early approach. Perpetuated Anselm's notion that it should be possible to find necessary reasons for the mysteries, mm. for according to Christian belief, the Trinity, being God, possesses ne- necessary existence. And you know, God's necessary, the Trinity's necessary, and so you know. Yeah, it, it follows that we should there should be necessary reasons. Um, Richard of St. Victor's articulation of this necessity invokes the perfection that God must necessarily possess in order to be God. God must have perfect love, yet perfect love requires the sharing of that love with another person. Mm. Moreover, the perfection of love amongst these two persons requires loving for the sake of a third. God yeah. possesses the perfection of love and thus God must be three persons this argument by the way is used by christian missionaries even today at speaker's corner i kid you not really as a way of beating muslims and saying aha you know you you, god must if god is love there must be this trinity uh this communion of persons as as it's called in theological so particularly in the orthodox understanding of the the trinity uh i'm not gonna go down there though but this is actually used today i've actually heard it used at speaker's corner amazing wow Mm. Richard of uh, St. Victor's long reach. Um, <laughs> amazing. So, I mean, this is where the change happens. Um, so, again, you know, we're in the period of the cathedral schools. It's before the founding of the universities. It's, you know, before the, the, the knowledge discovered in Toledo is fully assimilated. Um, it's the so-called Dark Ages. I mean, I think it's actually a beautiful period um, mm-hmm. in many, many ways in, in, in uh, Christian Europe. Um, but it is what we would consider possibly to be a somewhat naive view of the relationship between faith and reason. And there was just, but again, it comes from a laudable place in a way, because it was understanding that there is, you know, reality is one, everything's integrated. You know, if this is part of the, uh, the deposit of faith and is a, a true doctrine from God, then it must, it must make sense. Um, it must be reflected in the world. There must be traces of the Trinity everywhere um, it must be imprinted on our minds. Um, and so then but then this subtle change, well, not so subtle change as it happens, takes place. So uh, when the lost logical works of Aristotle became available in the early 13th century, particularly the posterior analytics that deals with the notion of strict scientific demonstration, again, in the, in the traditional sense, um, again, I mean, I think it's worth just very briefly stating that you know, the, the word science today has been co-opted um, by uh, 
what traditionally would be understood to be just one very small and not particularly distinguished field of human investigation, which is the empirical dimension and what is you know uh, testable in terms of the scientific method um, uh, and so forth. Um, that's become science, and that's all. You might add in you know mathematics and and formal logic, but fundamentally science is is reduced to the what, what are called the hard sciences. Whereas in the traditional Christian world. And really, arising from the discovery of the posterior analytics and the works of Ibn Sina and his Burhan particularly, mm. um, scientia meant certain und- indisputable, unequivocal, indubitable uh, uh, knowledge, um, regardless of what field that knowledge happened to obtain within. And the most scientific of the sciences was metaphysics. So the one which you know that which is considered to be most up for grabs and most subjective and most relative to the way you happen to look at things today was previously the 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 the, the supreme science that regulated all of the other sciences that determined the principles of all of the other sciences, the science of first principles. And so knowledge in the Islamic tradition is so it is a attribute that human beings possess, come to possess knowledge um, that entails or effects with an E or necessitates and acts of discrimination in the traditional sense, acts of distinct cognition. So, you know, this thing is this thing and it's not that thing and that thing is governed by the principle of identity it is itself and it's not that thing and they can't both be the same thing and that's not just in the realm of sense so it's a distinct it's that faculty that cognizes a dis- the world in its distinctness mm-hmm. and not only in the realm of sensible things but intelligible things as well so you know the uh, things you know uh, the propositions of logic of metaphysics and so on are governed by the principle of non-contradiction and they are distinct in themselves and 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 so you know there is this fundamental and real structure which obtains between them and so the, i'm just this is a little a little uh, digression because of talking about avicenna's demonstrative metaphysics mm. um, and, the, and the notion of scientific demonstration um, mm. again just very important to realize that this has nothing to do with modern science <laughs> um, who, who nicked that word from us basically <laughs> mm. Um, so Avicenna's sophisticated demo- so th- this is what they found in Toledo and it hadn't so this is the the period of the so-called dark ages the cathedral schools and they they literally didn't have this knowledge and then it was we- in the process of uh, simulating this knowledge that you know the universities were born Bologna first of all and then you know Paris and Oxford and Oxford, Cambridge yeah, yeah. so um so when these works became available, uh, a formal recognition of a type of knowledge and indeed of theological knowledge that could be known independently of faith became widespread. It became evident that with respect to pure reason, the putative proofs of the Trinity and the Incarnation were no more than sophistries, persuasive only to those who had already decided to have faith in those doctrines. And so it reaches this tipping point with Thomas Aquinas. So this is a quotation from his Summa Theologica, where he comes out and says very clearly, it is impossible to attain to the knowledge of the Trinity by natural reason. 
Whoever then tries to prove the trinity of persons by natural reason, and he, the same holds true for the incarnation, derogates from faith in two ways. Firstly, as regards the dignity of faith itself, which consists in its being concerned with invisible things that exceed human reason. Secondly, as regards the utility of drawing others to the faith, for when anyone in the endeavor to prove the faith brings forward reasons which are not cogent, he fall, falls under the ridicule of the unbelievers. Who are the unbelievers? Probably the Muslims. Muslims, yes. And the Jews. And Jews, yeah. Since they suppose that we stand upon such reasons and that we believe on such grounds, therefore we, we must not attempt to prove what is of faith except by authority alone to those who receive the authority, while as regards others it suffices to prove that what faith teaches is not impossible. Mm. So the real effect of this weak conciliation of faith and reason in which, though fundamentally separate, each supports and does not contradict the other, was simply to drive a wedge between reason and revelation as belonging to radically disparate orders. Mm. While the first broadly Platonic and Augustinian approach saw reason and revelation as forming an unbroken whole, and for Albert the Great and Aquinas they were separate but complementary, here we get to the third stage of the later uh, oh. ages, the age of, of the crises of the later middle ages. The tradition initiated by Occam, which was to be rendered a political, social and doctrinal reality by Luther, taught that reason and revelation are separate and do not enjoy any complementarity at all. The pursuit of either one entirely without reference to the other is thus completely justified for they are fundamentally irreconcilable. Indeed, this is the only reasonable way of proceeding. And this is a quote from Occam himself. And this is in a very interesting book, Paul Tom, The Logic of the Trinity, Augustine Tarkham. Just as it is a singularity in God that a trinity are a thing one in number, in such a way that the thing one in number is each of those three things, so, is it, so it is a singularity and beyond all that understanding that the inference, the essence that is one in number is the Son, the Father is not the Son, therefore the Father is not the essence, doesn't follow. So it's a singularity because it, 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 it opposes the fundamental structures of formal logic. And so this, and he was such a great logician, and it really must be, it can't be overstated how important and, and, and advanced and extraordinary a logician William of Ockham was, that he, he saw this as, uh, as uh, uh, and it was just something that couldn't be denied. It was uh, plain as day to, to Ockham that there, there was this fundamental opposition Mm. of the holy mysteries to the the structures of logic and so this singularity should not be posited except when the authority of holy scripture compels so look holy scripture can can is allowed to distort logic itself it's allowed to you know lo logic itself can be molded by holy scripture and so such a consequence never should be denied in creatures but the logical principle still holds true since in creatures, no one thing are many things and each of them. Mm -hmm. Yes. Which that's is called having, that's called having your cake and eating it, I think. But anyway. Exactly. exactly. Mm -hmm. And that's what that Kant likes to do. And actually, that's what Aristotle likes to do. But, you know, that's another story. We can't get into that. Um, but in any case, I mean, just to sum up, because, I mean, there's, there's mm -hmm. so much here and it is a bit unwieldy. I, I did know that before I started. Um, and it, in a way, um, I wish I could have got through much more, um, but uh, but but I think I'll just end on this point here, if you'll allow me, um, oh. which is that. Um, oh, Nietzsche! God, yeah, there's Nietzsche. Didn't get didn't get to him. That must be an early Nietzsche. I don't recognise him at all. Yeah, yeah that's very, very early. Yeah, 
Yeah, the young. Yeah, his famous handlebar moustache, uh, which was very prominent in later years. It was, yeah, and he looks um, almost human. Yeah, yeah, almost human there, and um, much mm. nicer. Um, in any case, I mean, just to sum up, um, so I mean, we've 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 broached a lot of different, very very fundamental historical and philosophical questions and problems here. Um, uh, uh, the last thing I'd like to say is just that. The assumption so widespread today in Islamic and Western countries alike and throughout the entire world is that non-empirical discourse is fundamentally subjective. That is, anything which is not the so-called hard sciences, you might have better or worse persuasive arguments, but at the end of for, for things which are you know for, for for philosophical questions, for theological opinions, but at the end of the day, ultimately, they are no more than subjective, and you are it's nothing more than you being convinced, and so it's really a psychological property. You know, it's it's you know I like this; it makes sense to me, so I'm going to be whatever religion it happens to be. I'm going to believe whatever it, philosophy it happens to be about the world, about ethics and so on. But the, the, the modern view, which is now universalized effectively, is that objective knowledge of such things is not even in principle possible. Um, and so that's where this notion of freedom comes in, understood in this art, what I call arbitrist mm. Um, sense, which is that it's not freedom in, in some traditional model of self-mastery um, or taking one's place in the whole or fulfilling one's true nature, but it's this idea that uh, Brad Gregory, who, whose beautiful book I've, I thoroughly recommend to everyone, The Unintended Reformation, he says the supreme value in modern science is free freedom of choice per se, regardless of what is chosen. And the mm. really important part of that is the regardless of what is chosen part. If mm. you start to tell someone else what they can choose and indeed the criterion that they're allowed to have for preferring one thing over another, you are simply oppressing them by imposing your own pseudo authority upon them, which is completely unjustified. And again, it all comes back to the idea non-empirical discourse, including ethical valuations, including metaphysical valuations, what things really are, essences, is all subjective. And so the only legitimate response to that is this notion of radical freedom, you know, of the individual. And all we really have genuine true access to is our individual wills. And no one can play with that. You know, that's completely up to us. And everything in that domain is completely up to us. Now, that is a profoundly idiosyncratically Western philosophy, which presupposes this very idiosyncratically Western history. Mm. And, you know, the sad thing is that so many people who want to do the right thing, let's say people who, you know, in post-colonialism today, for example, that, that field of study, which, which um, you know, wants to decolonize curriculums and things. Mm. But uh, the, 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 the not very funny irony of that is, their philosophy is the most idiosyncratically yeah. Western yeah. philosophy in the universe because it is the philosophy yeah. of modernism. Yeah, um, but, but, but this whole—I mean, just obvious point. This, this whole trajectory of this thought that's becoming universal 
it seems to me that leads to the inevitable suicide of, of a civilization. It, it's mm -hmm. unsustainable it, it, because you cannot you cannot build a civilization on such an outlook on such a philosophy because it is without foundations. It has no moral, epistemological, let alone metaphysical or ontological foundations, and mm -hmm. therefore it, it collapses uh, if nothing is solid. And also, it's the contradictions you mentioned. You know, if you were to feel you become a woman and so on. Well, we still do have science which talks about DNA in yeah. every human cell. And the DNA just comes in male and female. You know, uh, that's not gone away. It's not, it doesn't evaporate because we elevate the will over everything else. Science mm. is still telling us that, in fact, there are such things as males and females in the hardwiring of our biology, in our genetics. That's not gone away. In fact, that's a new discovery since Watson and Crick, of course, DNA. So mm. it, the, 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 these, both the paradoxes and also the, the, the suicidal nature uh, or the self-destructive nature of um, our civilization, but what, what what's particularly toxic for me is intrinsically toxic. But is the way it's exported globally mm. as a new kind of um, liberation or uh, a call to freedom is promoted by governments in Britain and America. That you know, uh, and 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 the way it, it condescendingly preaches at Muslims and others, just mm. expecting them, just expecting them to change their religions to conform to this latest. It's a particularly odious and. Oh. To many, it seems like yet another instantiation of a colonial mindset that just Absolutely. used to be Christian missionary, used to be liberal. Now it's this. Mm. Uh, we're insisting, we, the West, I mean, the white West, insists that the rest of the world um, jolly well ought to come in line quickly or it will suffer economic and cultural penalties. It, it comes at a price. Resistance comes at a price. So, Absolutely. And as you said, I mean, that you know, a great, a very clear manifestation of this is going on right now is the Qatar World Cup. I mean, this extraordinary, yeah. what they now call virtue signaling. I mean, the German team, which I think is why they went out so early, to be honest. But, um, you know, doing other things in football, apparently. They were well, I mean, uh, busy uh, virtue signaling, yes. Yeah, I mean, mm. just extraordinary. So, I mean, final thing. Um, in Islam, non-empirical discourse is, there is a science for it. Um, it, it's it's a science of of objective and real knowledge. Mm. Um, those abstract entities we were wondering what what on earth do they correspond to um, in the Islamic tradition? Specifically, here you see the uh, uh, the, the scheme of of, of of the Akbarian hierarchy of being, um, and, and you know, of course the Akbari school, although controversial today, um, was very very influential and acknowledged. Um, in high places and, and you know, the, the highest tabaqa, the highest kind of stratum of, of, the, of the ulama in the Ottoman world, in the Mughal world, were typically, um, uh, uh, yani Akbarianism had its place um, within the, the Islamic sciences and it even had a role of a kind of corrective role to the other Islamic sciences. And there were spiritual qualifications which were necessary. Um, so it wasn't kind of in, entirely publicly accessible, accessible to everyone. Um, but it did absolutely have its place to the extent that someone like Sheikh al-Islam ibn Kamal, uh, Kamal Pasha Zad, the very famous Ottoman, highest authority in the Ottoman world, um, and Sheikh al-Islam um, has his famous fatwa defending Ibn Arabi and, and um, affirming um you know, his his uh, uh, unquestionable and extremely important place um 
in the Islamic sciences. But uh, in the Akbarian tradition and the Platonic tradition broadly in, in um, uh, Avicennan, uh, uh, certain interpretations of Avicennan philosophy, those abstract propositions which troubled Kant so much and those abstract principles which don't seem to correspond to anything, but nonetheless our knowledge of the world depends upon them, Mm. They do correspond in that correspondence theory, but they correspond to intelligible reality. Mm. So mm. their understanding is not not that kind of uh, abstractive Aristotelian understanding that what is fundamentally real are physical substances, and we kind of abstract all of the intelligible properties from them. But what's really real is the is the individual substance. But rather, their understanding is that what's really real is actually the ghaib, the, the unseen world, mm-hmm. um, it, what the Platonists would call the intelligible world. And it really is real. And it, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's the dwelling place of the angels and it's the dwelling place of spirits and it's the de- dwelling place of, in some sense, forms. Mm-hmm. However, the Quran itself and Hadith alludes to this. So, you know, when you die, you will realize that this world was, you know, comparatively speaking, you know, not the real world. The real world is is the the unseen, and uh, that's when we will really understand the truth and realities of things. So, there's a sense that this is a lesser order of affairs. Uh, that's clearly in the Quran and the Hadith, of course. Absolutely, absolutely, and and so you know, their their understanding of the uh, of the world was so integrated with the the i mean their their revealed understanding of the world was so integrated um with their rational understanding their philosophies in this in these higher traditions um that um these questions of what is objective reality how do we account for the problem of abstract truth which doesn't seem to correspond to to the world that we can experience was explicitly dealt with um in terms of this scheme of the hierarchy of being mm-hmm. um and so uh, uh so to take just one example i mean our, our our concept of unity for example which is especially in the platonic tradition so important and the problem of the one of one the, the one and the many and the one over the many which is the form um, and that's why plato positive there has to be a form because there has to be a one over the many Let's say, why do we look out on the world, see lots of what are really just individuals, but say, oh, no, those are all humans. Those ones are humans and those ones are trees. Well, none of the individuals are human nature itself. Mm. So, you know, none of the individuals nor the individuals taken together for account for what can account for why there is this human nature there in the first place. So for Plato, there has to be something prior which answers to human nature. Um, so. You know, to take the idea of the one, I mean, in, in this tradition, you know, so how do we account for this non-empirical concept, the one? It's no empirical property, and yet we can't know the world without it. Well, they'd say the one unfolds in in different spheres of existence. It starts off with God's unity, and mm. that's where it originally comes from. And it is this, and, and individuality as well, al so, I mean, in the medieval world, what was known as hiacity. So the, the individual identity, what is that? It's not empirical property. For them, it's ultimately a reflection. It's a shadow or a reflection of what is ultimately God's identity, which is this, and, and, and God's unity. And so 
these properties unfold through various degrees of being until they appear in our world. And yes, you know, our world, there's no such thing as the purely physical world. It's always imbued with the intelligible, with the nonsensible, with the metaphysical, mm -hmm. even in our ordinary experience. And I think the amazing thing is Kant actually realized that. But the only way he could grapple with this huge difficulty of, of how is it that sensible properties interact with nonsensible properties to produce knowledge when nonsensible properties don't seem to be part of the fabric of reality. Therefore, you know, his only way of dealing with that is to say, well, it must all be imposed. Everything's subjective. Mm, Whereas mm. this had a way of, this tradition had a way, not just the Akbarian tradition, I mean, it's all detailed in my book, uh, Nafsul Ahmad, but things as they are, but uh, not just the Akbarian tradition by any means, but I think in a way it's par excellence, the tradition which uh, was able to deal with this in a really holistic manner. But in our tradition, um, well, there's a way for, in some sense, situating subjectivity within objectivity so that the subjective becomes an integral part of being and, and objective reality. Mm. And, and uh, so, I mean, as you can see, there are a lot of complex things involved. I think we've had enough for one day. Um, so I'll stop there. But, uh, but thank you very much for bearing with me. No, not at all. It's fantastic. I did just uh, finally, uh, you mentioned your, your book, Things As They Are, but there's the Metacritic of Kant and the Possibility of Metaphysics and Hierarchy of Freedom. Uh, are these two books about to be published uh, this year? or The Metaphysics, uh, of uh, the, the Possibility of Metaphysics is already out. Oh, um, right. oh, good to finally see you. Sorry, I've just been staring at my presentation the entire time. I couldn't see you. Um, the, 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 the Possibility of Metaphysics is already out. Uh, the Hierarchy yeah. is in press. So it's any, any right. day now. Few, probably in the next couple of weeks it will appear on Amazon. Well, certainly uh, get uh, get hold of those two. Well, uh, well, thank you very much in, indeed, uh, Hassan, uh, for your uh, erudition, eloquence, and your patience in uh, in well, explaining uh, all this. Uh, I, I know a number of your students at Jose Tuna College are anxiously waiting to uh, hear you uh, this evening. So uh, thank you very much, and I, I will certainly get the, these new works that you, you you've just written. Uh, have have a read of those. So um, uh, inshallah, maybe another time we can. Uh, discuss those uh, uh, works as well. In, in I'd be uh, delighted. I mean, if you still want to talk to me after all that. Um. <laughs> of course. <laughs> no, I, I'm, unfortunately, you, you've just wetted my appetite for more, unfortunately. So. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Uh, uh, this is blogging theology after all. This is what we do. Um, yeah, so, uh, um, it's also interesting that, uh, it's a slightly silly point, but we're both Englishmen in England, converts to Islam, and wearing suspiciously similar patterned shirts as well no, no, no. Um, uh, this is all very worrying <laughs> it's extraordinary <laughs> i just yeah amazing it tifak but um <laughs> alhamdulillah god works in mysterious ways indeed he does oh well thank you very much hassan and uh good evening to you and until next time thank you thank you very much take care everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.